You're listening to a podcast from 702. It's a Wednesday and that means it's time for our masterclass. So that's what we're devoting this entire hour to. One of our listeners wrote in recently saying, Sanya, you've asked us to suggest something for a masterclass um, and that we should let you guys know. So here goes. I have a question that may lead to a possible masterclass, I hope, Jane says. And she says, what about a person's last rights and will? To my knowledge, there is no register of wills. So who really knows if the will left is actually the last will of a person? And what if I make another will and have it uh, properly attested, but I give it to my daughter or whomever? And in the meantime, my husband or the bank or whomever has a different last will and testament for me. And they hand it over for execution. And my daughter or whomever does not present the one in her possession, even though it revokes all previous wills and testaments. And Jane really goes on in this kind of vein, asking so many questions about uh, wills, the intricacies, who actually knows what the last will is. Um, she asks about car crashes, for instance. Um, does everybody really, uh, does everything rather really go to the government if, say, a whole family passes? away in a car crash um, she has a whole host of scenarios that she wanted answers in um, and uh, she shares a personal story saying when my father died um, in uh, 2007 we knew that he wanted to be uh, cremated because he told us however it was recorded in his will which was only revealed a few days after his death by which time he would have been cremated but what if he didn't tell us and um, his will said he wanted to be, uh, what if his will said he wanted to be uh, uh, buried and he had been cremated. And so she really wants to know all of these practical things around um, estate management um, and also just practical things around wills. And so we decided to uh, use this email as part of our focus on of Will Week, which is happening this particular week. Um, and it's a moment, an opportunity for us to do what we need to do to protect our families to be responsible estate planners once we are gone. Um, and Jane, thank you so much for such a detailed, lengthy email um, and all the various thoughts and curiosities you have about wills and we'll be tackling, tackling them this afternoon. My guest is Sinal Govinda, the co-founder and director of Life.File. And I'm hoping that as part of this conversation, we'll also explore all the things lawyers don't tell us about wills. And we're going to be told all these things by a lawyer, by the way. Um, and I'm curious about a day in the life of an executor, because this can be a really lengthy process. It can be a really lengthy process, which means that we do have to uh, do things. Um, a will, in fact, can save us from this terrible length that can often leave many families just hamstrung, exhausted um, and unable to mourn at times and have full closure on the loss of a love, a love and I'm hoping by the end of this, many more of us will act and uh, put together a will for our loved ones. Sinal, good afternoon and welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me back. Wonderful, wonderful. So um, let's actually start with some of the basics before we dive deep into um, a lot of the other intricate questions. First, let's just outline uh, what a will is and why we would need one. I think just to give credit to the, the listener that, that put these questions through, it makes me very excited when people are proactive about getting their will. 
Um, I think what they touched on is the fact that South Africa doesn't have a rural repository, and we certainly, I certainly was never taught any of this at school um, until I went to, to law school. And I think the first thing to start off with is a will is the legal document that basically just tells people what needs to happen to all your things uh, when you die. Mm -hmm. It's not a requirement in terms of South African law. It's just that if you die without a will, there is a set formula uh, that that we follow in order to distribute your assets. And maybe people think, oh, but I don't have a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, I always tell people, if you just think about your clothes, um, you might have some money in a bank account, you might have household furniture, that all, all adds up. And it's just helpful to have a will to make sure that the property is going to the people that you would like it to. And then there's also some additional considerations, which we call end-of-life wishes, which is, is what um, Jane had been referring to, that just helps people um, provide your loved ones with a roadmap of, of how you would like your, your assets and your own burial processes or cremation processes to, to, to be followed. Mm, mm, I just love the idea of wishes, you know, what you, apart from what is in the will, but the, the wishes that you'd like to be, to have observed, you know, as part of your last rites. So what if I don't have any dependents? You know, this also comes up. Do I really need a will? Um, yep, and I think that's also a valid question. I am in that boat. I don't have a spouse, I don't have children, but I do have a modest um, set of assets. And again, it, it depends on what you want to happen to those things. So you don't have to have dependents um, in the true sense, but if you have any assets, and even if it is very modest, it also just um, speeds up the process to wind up your estate if there is a very clear roadmap Mm-hmm. You have an executor that, that steps into the, the administrator's role. Um, and then it just means that you can have your assets distributed in accordance to your wishes. So some people might choose whether they even have dependents. They might still want to have a public benefit organization, for example, or a tertiary institution or mm-hmm. a school mm-hmm. that um, receives the benefits or the proceeds of their estate. And if they don't stipulate that in their will, they would die intestate and that's where you would follow a formula and you might end up decreasing your estate to a distant uncle who you've never met, never spoken to, or maybe worse, have a terrible relationship with, but they might then end up inheriting something that you didn't want them to. Yeah, so what that means is that it's about the nearest blood relative, right, with the exception of what, uh, a spouse and adopted children. That's absolutely great. So it's that the assets will try and always find a blood relative apart from, uh, you know, other, the other people that can benefit are adopted children and, um, and a spouse. That's, that's, as you say, distant uncles like you, okay, you can go pretty far, can go really, really far. So, um, while we're talking about children, when or at what, from what age? Does it become necessary or important for someone to have a will? Young adults, for instance, might not see this as something that is necessary because they haven't built up any kind of assets or possessions. Is it then about a, a wish, for instance, or your wishes? Um, so at what age should this be a consideration or at what age should we start having something in place? So I think the earlier the better in terms of having conversations. I think it's very important to 
um, change the narrative about speaking about death. I spoke to somebody uh, earlier today who is facing difficulties approaching this with, with her parents and her in-laws because that generation just doesn't talk about death. Um, whereas the the more we can start having these conversations with younger people, I think the better it is. In terms of South African law, you can only um, draft a will when you're 16. So that's different to usually what we would require when you're entering into other contractual relationships. But from the, the minute you turn 16, you can execute a will. And I have been exposed to some younger people in the last few years of my life and very impressed with how many of them have their side hustles or YouTube channels and who generating income. They have established businesses, but also those who have inherited through grandparents or distant relatives or their own parents. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, again, important to understand what your, your assets are. I'm shocked at how expensive clothing is these days and it's yes. become quite a thing. You have these collectible sneakers. The sneakers, yes. I, I was just, yeah, I was just really taken aback the other day when I found out this whole network of, of sneaker trade going on. Mm. Um, and I think that's, that's why it's going to become even more uh, relevant for, for young people to, to get their walls in place, especially because a lot of assets now are also digital. And I, I do feel that, that younger generations are, are embracing that. So it's not to, to forget that just because something, you know, you can't hold it in, in your hand. Um, but I think when you start adding up laptops, cell phones, speakers, um, you know, online things, I, I believe Pokemon cards are, are making their way back as collector's <laughs> items. So all of these things start adding up into a pretty impressive uh, portfolio. Yeah. Yeah, right. I'm glad that we are touching on that because it's easy to think, no, you're 16, 18 year old, 23 year old, you know, this isn't something they should be preoccupied with at that age. And yet, I think it's important that they start to have these thoughts because as hard as it is, as you said, we find it hard to talk about death, especially the death of young people, you know, uh, we often can struggle with that because we think they'll have, they still have such long lives ahead of them, but it's life, sadly. So, Put something in place, your wishes and leave instructions about what must happen with the things that you find really precious to you. Um, let's talk about an exec- the, the executors. What should our approach and our thinking be on who the estate administrator, that's how you, that's how you described them earlier, someone who will administrate um, the estate. What should our thinking and approach be on who that person should be? So for me, I think a lot of times when people start having the conversation about uh, death and their will, they do. They think a lot about their assets and who they would want to receive what. Um, But perhaps not enough focus is on the executor, and maybe it's just because of a lack of understanding. So I, for a very long time, also thought that you would have to have a lawyer or a financial institution as the executor. Um, until I started realizing that that's actually because those are the people that are trying to educate you and encourage you encourage you to take out a will or um, execute one, but you don't have to. So the first the first thing is that you don't have to have a lawyer or a financial institution as your executor. You could appoint anybody um, provided that there's certain requirements met, like they are over 18, um, that they are sound mind and, and are able to carry out the task. And sometimes it's, it's better to appoint a loved one as the executor because they would have I guess, more interest in the estate. The executor stands to be paid a fee. It's a percentage of the estate. 
So sometimes when you have somebody who's too distant, mm. they might not be incentivized to, to wind up in a state um, that is of a, you know, insignificant financial value. That said, the master of the high court actually has to issue a piece of paper, which they call a letter of executorship, that will allow somebody to actually start doing what they need to do. They need to start closing bank accounts. They need to start reporting the debt to to other creditors. Um, and usually what would happen is that the master of the high court would need some affirmation that the person that's going to be doing this is competent too. So usually what we find is people would appoint a loved one, or at least we would recommend that somebody appoints a loved one, and then give them the power in their will to appoint somebody to help them. And that's just a simple power of attorney. So that's a contract that you would sign with with the likes of a lawyer. Um, but if you find that they're not doing their job, they're not being responsive enough, um, you can then revoke that power of attorney because trying to replace an executor is a very, very challenging thing in South Africa. And it actually requires you to go to court and have an application to, to remove that executor. And it's just, it's very, very difficult um, to go through that process and can become quite costly and time consuming. Mm. That said, for a lot of people, everybody's family is different. And for a lot of people, having a family member or a friend is just not an option for them. And in which case it does become better for them to appoint a lawyer or a financial institution that can be a bit more objective in the, in the process as well. Mm, right. Okay. So, uh, a capable person in the family. There's a, a, a WhatsApp that's coming. It says, very important not to make one of the financial companies the executor. They'll take maximum fees, even though this is not law. Fees are negotiable. Always make a trusted family member the main executor, as you've just said. Um, they, in turn, can appoint an approved agent at a more favorable rate. Uh, all these companies who offer and in quotation marks, free wills are only in it for their own benefits. They will try to charge 3.5% of the gross value of the estate plus 6% of all revenue earned by the estate during the wind-up process. It's a totally egregious fee for the amount of work effort involved or effort involved in a typical will with few assets and bears no relation to the actual services performed. Can you take us a little bit deeper into some of the issues that are raised here? There's the question of the fees, right? And um, I want us to also understand what goes into the just a day in the life of an executor because they're involved and also the, the involvement and potentially the erosion of what is left in the estate that is bequeathed to uh, the beneficiaries. I think all those points raised are really valid. And it again, it, it's such a lawyer response to say it depends when you, when you get asked questions. Yeah. Um, like I said, I, I, I do want to be very transparent and say, I do think there are some instances where an objective third party might be the better executor option. In my view, it's quite rare and I, I wouldn't recommend it for all those reasons that that, that listener has, has raised. Mm. But just to take it through, the process is that in terms of, of the law, there's pieces of legislation that regulate all sorts of different things, and sometimes they all work together. But the the law here is the Administration of the Estates Act. And in terms of that act, um, an executor is entitled to charge a percentage of the estate. And 
as Mr. mentioned, it's three and a half percent of the gross value of the state. So that's before any expenses or any creditors are paid, anything like that. So it can become quite a significant amount of money. Um, and then an executor is also entitled to um, take a fee of 6% of the income uh, between the date that the deceased dies and then the date that the estate is wrapped up. And income, of course, you know, the deceased is not working anymore, but income could be um, things like interest. So if they have a significant investment or property that's uh, generating rental income, for example, then mm. that would be the 6% would be calculated on, on those amounts. And absolutely, it's not an easy job to be an executor. You are dealing with things like having to report the death, um, you know, obtaining the death certificate from family, reporting the death to the master. You have to arrange for the um, deceased estate to be advertised, and there's a public way of doing that. I mean, I think it's still quite outdated, and you have to take out adverts in newspapers, but <laughs> it, it allows creditors to put their claims in to the state to say, oh, actually, this person owed me money. And so now you're having to manage creditors and, you know, anybody that has, has ever gotten a call from those people know it's not pleasant. Um, and then you have to draw up what is called a liquidation and distribution account, which is a kind of an accounting term where you list all the assets of the the um, deceased, you look at all their liabilities that they need to pay, you minus all the costs, so that those would be funeral costs, estate duties, the executive fees, and whatever is left over, you then have to distribute to the beneficiaries. Mm-hmm. And this process can take years. Sometimes it can take a few weeks, but in, in most cases it takes years. Mm-hmm. And it can become quite a, a time-consuming job. And I think it is always fair that an executor is being paid a fee. But I think what the listener raised is very important, is that sometimes you could get an estate that's worth 100 million rand, but there are two assets and two beneficiaries, and this asset goes to this person, this asset goes to the other person. There's no liabilities, no costs, no creditors. And that's a fairly, fairly straightforward estate to wind up. But if you look at the three and a half percent, potentially six percent on the rental or other income, um, that executor could really, really coin it to to one drop better word. Whereas a lower income estate could be very, very complicated. And you might then find that a professional firm would actually say three and a half percent of this estate is not it's not worth our while to do it and often will renounce their executorship. And my mom died a few years ago and that's exactly what happened in our situation where she didn't have very many assets at all. Um, But her estate was a bit complicated and the lawyers that were appointed there renounced their executorship. They eventually just said, this is not really worth worth our time. Mm. So it is important to also understand yourself when you are structuring your estate or when you're thinking about that. If your estate is very complicated, then potentially get some external help there and that's where it does maybe become better to appoint a financial institution that is incentivized because they will get a significant fee. Um, But if your estate is fairly straightforward, then absolutely appoint somebody that you know that is rational, Mm. can try to be objective and Mm. is pretty good with admin and then let them get external help and arrange a fee with that external person where they can say, 
okay, I've had a look at the estate. I think this is very complicated or it's not very complicated and I will charge a fixed fee of this um, or potentially even agree to a lower percentage of the estate is, is the most ideal. Yes. I've got to take headlines and I wonder if this would be like a really detailed, it would require a detailed uh, response. I wanted to understand what the practical aspects of the administration of a, of an estate uh, requires, just the day-to-day kind of problems that executors uh, often run into. So we've talked about the fees, but what are just some of the other things that they would have to be fit enough to do? So I guess just having conversations with people, I think it's a skill that maybe we underestimate. But mm-hmm. like I said, you you working with so many moving parts, there's of course beneficiaries who I'm sure will be putting a lot of pressure on the executive to um, be able to access their inheritance. But that is the last step of the process. Mm-hmm. And it's managing, you know, having some sort of people skills with beneficiaries, keeping them up to date and, and you know, trying to calm them enough they are obviously going through quite a significant loss and experience. But at the same time, you'll be dealing with, or potentially you'll be dealing with creditors. You are now also looking to get their piece of the pie. Um, you might be dealing with some government institutions, public institutions where things might take a long time to process. You might be having to go to the master of the high court um, to obtain, for example, as I was saying, your letters of executorship. Um, you might have to find the original will and lodge back at the master of the high court. Um, that whole thing of if things can go wrong, they will. I think most people experience this when, when winding up the stakes. Um, you might get quite far in the process only to find out that not all the assets were declared. And now you have to recalculate all, all these different things and now maybe pay a different creditor that you hadn't um, factored in at the beginning. So mm. there are lots of moving parts and it's it's difficult because I think sometimes these things come in waves and then they might be a month or longer where nothing happens and then suddenly everything picks up again and an executor will need to have to be able to juggle all of those things. And, and as I said, I think the key quality in an executor is somebody that's quite good with administration so they can keep records of all of these different things and all these moving parts and at any given moment have to be accountable to the various people that are asking him yeah. questions about the estate. Right. Yeah. So if you've just joined us, we're in the throes of a masterclass on wills and estates. It is National Wills Week. And it's been fascinating listening to Sinal Govinda, the co-founder and director of uh, Life.File. She's been giving us the ins and outs of um, putting together our wills. And so far, we've been focused uh, somewhat on executors who play such an important role. It's not just about what you leave behind, but of course, how all of this would be administered. More of your questions and comments um, after this. 702 Masterclass. And we're back with our Masterclass. Sinal Govinda, co-founder and director of Life.File, has been answering our questions about wills and estates. So fascinating to be able to have this deep dive into several aspects. Um, and we touched on executors earlier on. So, Sinal, here is a question. Um, I'll ask two questions, but I think they speak to the same issue. 
Um, Zalika says, I've given my daughter a letter to open once I die. And in it, I have the details of who to contact and what to get from where. I even have the program songs to be played um, at the speak uh, and the speakers. I think this is more for her passing, saying that my grandmother did this in the 90s and this made everything easier. Right. And then another WhatsApp says uh, from uh, Andrew B. And it says, please explain how to legalize your own home drafted will so um what zalika has left sounds like a letter of wishes and if we look at andrew's whatsapp he's drafted a will and is a homemade one legal i think uh, those are both excellent uh, things to raise and having gone through um, a few close um, people in my life who've died absolutely having a roadmap to what they would have liked um, their farewells to look like and um, makes it so much easier. It just really takes that decision-making burden off loved ones. And any legal conversation aside, trying to give your loved ones the space to focus on grieving you and celebrating you is way better than, than spending time with lawyers and, and doing the advancement of the estate. Um, something to, to maybe just distinguish between those two is your will regulates your assets and your estate when you die. And that is very different to the wishes that you have for how you wish to be celebrated after you've died. And um, often people put them in together, but they don't, you, if by putting your wishes into your will, that's absolutely fine. But by having your assets in a letter of wishes, that's where things can become a bit complicated. So, okay. I have great respect for people who, it's not an easy thing to do, and I have great respect for people who take the time to set out their own wishes and give thought to that, and then to have the difficult conversations with their loved ones. Um, I think it was Jane who mentioned at the beginning that Mm. her grandfather had wanted to be cremated, and they did do that, but you know, he might have wanted something else. And something similar happened to me after my mom died. Culturally, we always follow a cremation process, but my mom actually had very specific wishes for her ashes that we weren't able to fulfill because we only found those documents a few days after her, her funeral. Mm-hmm. So having that, communicating it, storing it in a safe place is absolutely what we love to hear. Um, and then the second thing is a home draft will, how do I make sure it's valid? Truth be told, some walls drafted by lawyers are also not valid oh. because people don't realize they are very, very specific formal requirements. Some people say that they are outdated, given that we are in 2021, but other people have an argument that because this is such a serious document, maybe the most important and most serious document you will ever draft in your whole life or ever create in your whole life, um, it, there are very, very specific uh, requirements that you need to, to meet. So the first thing is your will has to be in writing. It's has to be tan- in a tangible piece of paper. So if you have a, a document that's currently sitting on your computer um, where you set out, this is these are all my assets, this is what I want to have happen to them, that won't be considered a valuable in South African law. So you would need to print that out. You would need to go and sign it in front of two witnesses. Um, you really want to make sure that the people who are witnessing your will are not beneficiaries. It won't invalidate the will, but if 
that person witnesses your will and their beneficiary, they won't be able to actually inherit from your estate. So that might be something that people don't know. Hmm. Um, and you would all need to be signing it together. So you and the two witnesses need to almost witness each other signing it. You can't go, um, I'll be very, very honest with you, the two witnesses in my will are people from PostNet. I printed it out and asked <laughs> the two employees there to witness it. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't have gone there with my will signed and said, oh, please, will you witness this? Because mm-hmm. they don't know that it was me signing it or I might have been, you know, coerced into signing this by somebody else. And it's all these sorts of things that um, inform our law and why there are such strict requirements. Mm. It also has to be um, a, a pen. You know, you have to sign it. You can't just use an electronic signature. And if for whatever reason you aren't able to sign it, um, you have to make some kind of mark, personal mark. So. Some people might be illiterate. Some people might physically not be able to actually sign a document. Mm. So there are these other requirements that they make allowance for, but it must be you that's doing it and it must be not a digital electronic process. Um, And then very, very, very important, even though we built a whole business around keeping things electronically, the number one thing that we say is you keep that original will in a safe space and you tell as many, not as many people as you can, but you tell a few people where that original will is kept. So going back to the listeners who, who the listener who mentioned an envelope of this is exactly what you need to do, who to contact, where to find things, brilliant. Because that original will is what the master of the high court will be looking for. Yeah. And if you don't have that for whatever reason, you could submit a copy, but again, it's just extra steps. It potentially has extra cost implications because you as the executive, whoever the executives will need to go and make an argument with the master mm. why this copy needs to be um, accepted because you can understand it's just, it's too risky to have a fraudulent will um, being submitted and saying, oh, you know, this is the actual, this is the real one, I promise, versus, you know, pen and paper, you mm-hmm. can see where mm-hmm. the ink has been and and submitting that document. All right. Uh, let's take another quick break and then we come back to the lines and the voice notes. 702 Masterclass. Right, let's go straight to the lines. Uh, my guest is Sinal Gavinder, co-founder and director of uh, Life.File as we look at wills and estates this afternoon. Subeda, thanks for your patience. You're in Lanasia. What question do you have this afternoon? Good afternoon, uh, Aza and your guest, Sinal. Um, my question is that uh, Sinal mentioned that uh, you can do your own will, but you might need to appoint an external person to assist you, um, you know, as an executor. And my question is, so who would she advise that external person to be? Would it be a lawyer or what kind of external person? Mm, Okay, what kind of external person, what kind of profession? Is it an accountant, a lawyer, an auditor, a fiduciary institution? Who? That's a great question. Um, first of all, you don't need to have somebody to assist you with drafting your will. Of course, it would always be recommended to get some, some kind of advice. But when you get and get that advice, my, um, caution against that is just be mindful that somebody shouldn't ever force you that they should be the executor. They should never try and coerce you into putting themselves as the executor. And um, the kind of people that I recommend people choose as the executor is first and foremost, somebody that you trust. Somebody that you trust will be honest um, in how they approach this and fair in how they conduct themselves. 
it is always helpful to have somebody who has got a good administrative head on their shoulders. It doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who has wonderful financial acumen um, because, again, that person can appoint a third party to help them. And then that third party that I would recommend would be somebody along the lines of a lawyer, an accountant. Um, those are the two two ones that I, I would recommend, mostly because they are likely to be able to convince the master that they are going to be able to attend to the duties of the executor and do it in the most efficient way possible. Right. Thank you for that, Zubeda. Um, we've got Tapelo in Furenaging as well. Hi, Tapelo. Hi, Ava. Uh, good afternoon to your guest. Um, mine is just a will versus a, a marriage dictate. Um, can somebody, when you, when you draft the will, can somebody come up and say, okay, I was married to this guy, so I'm taking everything that he owned? Um, the, which one takes uh, more power between the two? Right. So, for instance, if you're married in community of property. Yes. Okay. Yes, so which, take, which takes precedence? Actually, they both work together. And I, I mentioned a bit earlier how there's different laws um, that all act together. So we've got the administration of deceased estates, and we're talking about how the executor works there. But there's also a Maintenance of Surviving Spouses Act. And that allows a spouse, even if they are specifically excluded, we, we work on a thing called freedom of testation, where when you're drafting your will, you don't have to include your spouse in your will for whatever reason it might be, um, and you don't have to include your children. But dependents, including your spouse and your, your children, they might be able to put a claim against the estate. So when we're talking about how um, your estate is calculated, you're going to end up with a, a final amount that goes to the beneficiaries, but your spouse absolutely might go to the estate and say, I was dependent on this person during the course of our marriage, and just because that person has died doesn't absolve their estate of the duty to support mm. that spouse. And likewise, when you get divorced, it doesn't necessarily mean that half of your estate goes to your ex-spouse, but it does mean that you might need to support, continue supporting them. And there's a little asterisk there that says it's only until that person is able to support themselves or, for example, enters into another relationship. And there's a lot of factors to consider. But, yes, those two things absolutely work hand in hand. Something on that note, which a lot of people don't realize, is that when you get divorced, um, it's completely up to you who you want to include in your world, including your ex-spouse. Um, but in terms of South African law, there's a three-month grace period from when you get divorced where the court will assume that you didn't want your ex-spouse to inherit from your estate, um, in which case if you die, they will be excluded. But after that three months, the court says, oh, well, I, I assume that you wanted this person to stay in your will, and that's why you didn't update it. And anybody who's gone through that process will know how quickly three months can go. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just something to be mindful of. It's, so, if, if, for example, you have children or you have a new spouse, yeah. if that other person is listed in your will, they will inherit from your estate. And the new spouse won't? Yep. If they're not mentioned? So if it's in, if there yes, is no, if, although, if there is no will that removes the old spouse, or if the the only will that remains is the one that reflects the old spouse, the new spouse will not inherit. 
Absolutely. And okay. what they might be able to do is put in a claim to the state for maintenance. Mm-hmm. But if, for example, they have their own jobs, they're pretty financially independent, and they, they might not have that claim. And likewise, lots of people, for personal reasons, choose not to get married but have long-term partners, and they also wouldn't be considered a spouse in terms of inheritance or that um, duty of support. So just something to bear in mind that if you want a particular person to inherit a particular thing, you've got to get an updated will sorted out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this update of, of wills, once again, it's the process that you mentioned earlier on. You do need to follow everything that is required for a will. And what if it's with a different, maybe you did the first one with the bank and then you're doing this one with the lawyer. And when you do pass, the one with the bank is the one that comes forward and maybe the other one it just never surfaces. Um, do you have scenarios like that? In fact, that's what one of the situations that Jane asked about, that what if the updated one simply doesn't, it's, is in my safe at home and the one that I did with the bank that maybe my children or relatives know about is, is the one, the outdated one is the one that comes forth? I think that's why it, it again comes, it becomes so important to keep having these conversations um, with your loved ones and just Keeping on top of your own administration, yes, my yeah. advice to anybody is if you are updating your will, is to call for the original one. Usually banks um, or a law firm, if, if you've gone through them, they will keep that original. Um, but if you're going to update it and you know, you're moving from a bank to a lawyer, then absolutely. I think South Africans have a weird relationship with banks where they think they can't really ask for things and with lawyers. But you can actually say to the bank, I'm updating my will. No, I'm not interested in using your services to be an executor and please can I have the original will, get it from them and rather destroy that sign a new one, destroy the old one and then there's no risk of confusion and Uh, and even if you're using different executors, just talk to your family and keep Mm -hmm. them updated with where things are. Yes, Um, Elaine, I'm going to ask that you squeeze this in, I've got 30 seconds because I think it's an important one, what's your question? Yes, um, I purchased one from the PNA and I Pulled it in and I had it um, authorized, you know, by, I went to the witnessed. bank and they oh. signed, witnessed it. Okay. So is it legal? That's what you want to know? Yes. Okay. So now I'm going to ask for a very brief response because I am out of time. Sure. I think there's nothing wrong with getting a template will. It's just to be very, very careful and make sure that it's reflecting your wishes. And like I said, there are formalities in place, witnessing it correctly, having it printed out and signing it. And um, we do have a will guide that's available on our website. You can have a look at that and see if it, you've complied with those requirements. Okay. Right. So it just has to comply with the requirements. Um, so make sure that it does. Thank you very much. This has been so insightful. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's Sinel Govinder. And um, she is from Life.File, the co-founder and director.